Welcome you to Grace Fellowship and welcome you this morning to those who are joining us by our podcast or online. I want to welcome you and say how thankful we are that you're here to worship with us. Um, we know that joining us uh, virtually um, is not uh, the ideal and we know that many people want to be here in person but are not able to do that. And so we've provided, tried to provide the message um, through different means so that people who are sick or people who can't come and be with us in person at this moment can also join us in some way. We know that they want to be here. Um, in Romans uh, chapter 1, we've been learning really about um, how we're all in the same boat. Romans 1 and 2, um, we're all in the same boat. And that is we all need Jesus. Um, I saw a t-shirt recently that uh, said, y'all all need Jesus on the front. <laughs> you know, and it was kind of this way of saying we all need help. And that's true. Um, but uh, deep down, sometimes we, we think that, that there may be this kind of hierarchy of need when it comes to people who need Christ. And maybe some people need Christ more or some people need the gospel more uh, than others. And what we learn from Scripture, what we have been learning is that we all need the gospel because we are all sinners in the eyes of God. And so any type of choice that God makes of using human beings or nations or communities or groups of people um, does not reconcile us to God as we're going to learn today. Just because God chooses us for something uh, to display his glory, to witness something about him to other people, that doesn't reconcile us to God just because he uses us for his purpose. The only way that we can be reconciled to God, and that is to spend eternity with him as well, and be in a right, relation, right relationship with him, is if he makes us righteous through his own work. And that's what we're going to learn today. And I think this is, it's important for us for several reasons as Christians today, because... Sometimes as, as people who maybe you've grown up in church or maybe you've, you, you, you may say things like, well, I've always been a Christian. I have students at GCU whenever uh, in the first couple of weeks we give an assignment in Christian worldview and we tell them to, to give their understanding, whether they're a Christian or not, their understanding of the Christian worldview. What do you know about Christianity? Uh, just tell us what you know. And, and some students will respond, well, I've been a Christian all my life, Right? Or as long as I can remember. Um, the truth is that none of us have been Christians all of our life. But there are many of us that have lived maybe in a Christian home, have been brought up in a Christian home, or at least where Christian values were taught and emulated and things like that. But we need to understand that not only, not only does that not reconcile us, us to God, living in that type of environment, even though we would consider that a blessing. Thank you, Lord, for giving me a... Christian mom and dad. Thank you, Lord, for giving me a Christian community that I can grow up in. That blessing from God does not reconcile us to God. It doesn't make us 
acceptable to God. The only one, the only way that we can be made acceptable to God is through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And sometimes human beings will try to, will, will be tempted to put our faith in something else other than the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so Paul writes to the church in Rome and he writes to Jewish people and Gentile people, the nations. He will call them, he will talk about being obligated to both Greeks and to barbarians, to the wise and to the foolish. And now when we get into the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2, he talks about two groups that he mentions three or four times. The Greeks and the Jews. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. There's a reason for that order. Okay? And, it, and it's, it's not meaningless. It's not, it's not arbitrary. God has a reason for that. However, when it comes to being righteous in the sight of God, it doesn't matter which one of those groups that you belong to. Either community, and both of those communities, contain sinners. So today, last week, we looked at why good people need the gospel. Today, we're going to discover why chosen people need the gospel. Our text today is going to be verses 6 through 23 of Romans chapter 2. starting in verse 6, and again, as always, I'll be reading from the New American Standard Version. Follow along in your Bible if you have it with you. Now, Paul is talking about God, and in verse 6, is, verse 6 is really tied to verse 5, but he talks about God, and he describes him this way, who will render to every man according to his deeds. To those who by perseverance and doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life, but to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also to the Greek, or also of the Greek. But glory and honor and peace to every man who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Verse 11, for there is no partiality with God, for all who have sinned, without the law will also perish without the law and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law for not the hearers of the law are just before God but the doers of the law will be justified for when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law these not having the law are a law to themselves in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Jesus Christ. But if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God, and know his will, and approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law, and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light, to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of the truth. You therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one should not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? 
You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? Let's pause and pray for a moment. God, we do pray that you would bless your word today, that we know that it never returns to you void, and we pray each one of us, God, that that would be true in our life today. That you would produce fruit by the power of your spirit spirit in each one of us as we interact with your word. And God, as we again bow before you and, and ask that you would look deeply into our hearts and minds today and reveal to us any sin that we may need to repent of, confess before you. And God, that you would show us how to grow, not only in knowledge, but Lord, in godliness and in truth. And that you would show us also how to minister to one another in that. In Jesus' name, amen. Today we're going to look at two reasons why the chosen need the gospel. The word chosen really just means large scale anyone who is chosen by God in his mercy to do something that God wants them to do. We learn from Paul also He warns members of the church, if you're a member of the community of Christ, if you belong to the body of Christ, the church, he says in another place in the New Testament, he says, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, church members, that Israel, God's people in the Old Testament, were also a chosen group, a community, called out of the world to be a certain type of community and to do certain things however as they made their way through the wilderness many of them did not live because they practiced evil things and they were he says laid low in the wilderness because God was not pleased with their behavior so many of them didn't even enter into the promised land didn't get to see the promise and he says I'm telling you this as a warning To not take consolation when it comes to who you are, your identity. Don't take consolation that you're part of a called out community. Now we would all agree that if you are part of the church, you should be a a believer. We believe in a believer's church. Um, An early theologian named Augustine was one of the first ones to really articulate what he believed was a New Testament distinction between... The invisible and the visible church. The invisible church are true believers who have been converted, who have been saved by the power of the gospel, who may or may not be in the visible community all the time. And then there are people who are visibly part of the church community. Their name is on the roll or they regularly attend a small group or they come to worship service regularly or whatever. But they're really not born again because they haven't had a personal encounter with Jesus Christ. They've never surrendered their life to him. They've never confessed their sin to God and say, God, my life is now yours. But they're still part of that visible community. And so the warning here that he gives is not just for Jews who consider their, themselves as part of 
God's Old Testament community, Israel, and they could trace their lineage back to David and back to Abraham and say, look, we're children of the promise. He warns them of putting their faith and their trust as being chosen by God for a specific reason and belonging to a certain community. And so one of the things that we notice in the first part of Scripture and of our text this morning, verses 6 through 10 and then also 17 through 23, is that a person's privileged position or a group's privileged position, but definitely an individual, among other people, falls short. Holding a privileged position among other people is something that falls short of being righteous before God, being acceptable to God. Now notice what he says in the first part in verses 6 through 10. He again repeats that idea of position. He says, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now, if you remember back in chapter 1, he said, look, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm going to tell everybody about the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation to who? To the Jew first and also to the Greek. There is a right ordering of things because the Messiah, Jesus Christ, was the Messiah, is the Messiah for God's chosen people, Israel. And they were to be looking for that Messiah. And so when Jesus comes, he talks about how he's coming to God's, God the Father's sheep first, right? And then later, he's going to move his, he's going to expand his ministry to the nations, to the Gentiles. But he's actually going to do that through the Jews. Because on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 1 and 2, you have the, the apostles who are preaching the gospel and all of these Jews who have different languages they're hearing the gospel in their own language and after that moment they all go back to their homelands wherever their places of birth are and they're sharing Christ in the synagogues with who with fellow Jews who were looking for the Messiah and so Paul says the gospel is for the Jew first and also the Greek there is a right ordering of these things it's proper and so, but then he says, also what you need to understand if you're part of that chosen community that has primacy in order, there's something you need to know about the way God treats sin. He starts off in verse 6 saying that God is going to render to everyone, everyone, Regardless of what community you belong to or, or what the order is, whether you're a Jew or a Greek, God is going to render to every person according to what? Not their position. According to their deeds. According to what they do. This is the way that it works. And then he says in verse 11, there's no what? Partiality with God. He's not a respecter of persons. And so even though his readers are Jews, they would have read this, he's trying to get them to understand we are all the same in God's sight. You might be first in line, but you're still just as in much of, a, of need of a Savior 
as those who are behind you in line. So he gives this comparison. And it's not as though he's holding out hope for people to have their own righteousness. But he's trying to say, these things will happen. Tribulation, distress, or glory and honor and immortality and eternal life. These things will happen to certain people regardless of what God has chosen you for. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. So the privilege of position falls short. Have you ever been to a theme park? Maybe when you were a kid and there was a ride that you wanted to get on and you couldn't because of that sign it said unless you are this high you cannot yeah Margie and Dare like this never happened to me <laughs> but the rest of us okay of average height there was a time in our life <laughs> oh you, you know I, I've I see those signs I remember those signs when I was a kid you know and um, I'm not big of a you know joyride risk taker type of person I'm not the type of person who would bungee jump. You might be that type of person. I would do it. But you think of those signs, and, and it's a rule. You know, you don't, it, there's the mark. It's right there, and you, you get there, and, you know, and there's supposed to be somebody there, an authority in the ride who says, I'm sorry, you can't. And usually it's an older teenager, and they feel bad. I'm, I'm sorry, you can't go on this ride. person feels really sad and whatever. I'll imagine, you know, you're, you're, you know, there's a, there's, a, there's a kid who doesn't measure up at all, but they, they get at the front of the line. They're, they're there, right as the theme park opens, they're the first one in line, and the person says, look, you can't, you, you can't get on the slide, and they say, or the, the ride, and they say, well, look, I'm the first one here. Uh, what are they going to say? I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that you're the first one here. The rule still applies. Well, let's take it up a notch, okay? Well, my, my father owns the theme park. That's pretty impressive. My father built the ride. He's the engineer who built this thing. You've got to let me on. What do you think the person's going to say? No, because your, your father, if he did that, he's also one who created this rule that says you have to be a certain height to get on this ride, and he has reasons for that. The privilege of position of that youngster in the line or the identity of who their father is or, or whatever doesn't, change the fact that the rule still applies. And what Paul is saying to his Jewish readers and his audience is, he's saying the rule of righteousness still applies to you even though you were brought up in this chosen community. It still applies to you. The privilege of position among others falls short. In Matthew chapter 3, I invite you to turn your Bibles over to Matthew 3. We are reminded of a time when a man we call John the Baptist or John the Baptizer is baptizing people. 
He's in a river and baptizing people and people are coming to him. His baptism, the Bible says, is one of repentance. Repentance from sin and repentance to good works. And Matthew 3 verse 7 says, But when John the Baptist saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers. That means you son of snakes. Sons of snakes. (laughs) Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you, that God is able from these stones... To raise up children to Abraham. What is John saying there? He says to them first of all. That the Messiah is here. The wrath of God is coming. The kingdom is in your midst. And so don't come here to put on a show. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Don't just come to be baptized. You know as as a photo op. Basically. And then he anticipates something that they might respond with. They might say, well, wait, wait a minute. Do you know who we are? We're, we're children of Abraham. We're the seed of Abraham. We're living on the promise of God. What does John say to them? He says, your identity, your genealogy doesn't mean anything when it comes to when it comes to righteousness in the sight of God. Now, it's not that their identity is meaningless. No. They're God's chosen people, given the law that they might be salt and light in the world and prepare people for the coming Messiah. But when it comes to righteousness in God's sight, the privilege of position does not advance you or me or them one inch. And so when he comes to verse 17, back in Romans chapter 2, we're going to skip to verse 17. He says, here's the, here's the issue. He's like, you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God. And if you know his will, you approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law. And then he says, And are confident that you yourself are, listen to these, a guide, a light, a corrector, a teacher, a preacher. He says all these things, if you are all of these things, if you've taken the position to judge other people based upon these things, And God has told you to teach. God has told you to preach. He's told you to do these things. But think about this. Does having those positions cause you not to sin in the same ways? No. It doesn't. The positions that you have should show you on a more regular basis that you have sin within you. It is separating you from God. And so position doesn't advance us 
in righteousness. Sometimes we are also tempted to skip the line because of certain privileges that we have as modern day Christians. We might think that we don't need God's mercy displayed through Christ on the cross for several different reasons maybe as you may be one person who said like we talked about earlier I have spent all of my life or much of my life as a Christian. I've, I've devoted my whole life to God. I've made several sacrifices for the Lord. We, we might be tempted to think that there are things that advance us in front of other people. They give us privilege of position, maybe because of our knowledge and our experience as Christians, or our knowledge and experience as members of the church, our knowledge of the Bible, our knowledge of God, or maybe our devotion. I meet people who in the end of their life or as they get older, unfortunately many times it's, the, it's the, the testimony of older people who say, you know what, I used to be passionate about these things and, and I was devoted to God at this time of my life. I gave, him, I gave him everything. I gave him my best years. And he, he owes me. I wouldn't come out and say that. But many people feel like that. The longer they belong to the community of Christ, the longer they belong to the church, we are tempted to think that we're advanced because of our devotion or some of our sacrifices to Jesus. But we all have the same standard. And it's Christ's righteousness. And it's not only potent and it's not only applicable the moment we believe, but it will be for our entire life as Christians within the body of Christ. When I was in junior high, my junior high coach, and we were at a small school, and so my junior high coach coached pretty much everything, boys-wise, 7th and 8th grade. And uh, he was a retired I don't think he was a retired Marine, but he was a Marine, and he wore his Marine stuff, and he was a really short guy, but you didn't want to mess with him. And for some reason, he thought it would be a good idea for, for one of his athletes, Luke Panter, to run the 1,600 meters in track. I didn't want to run track, but I did. I loved basketball and baseball. I didn't really, wasn't really crazy about track. I'm not a runner at all. These people who love to run need help, okay? You just, you, just, you just need help. I should love to run, but I don't. But he thought it'd be a good idea if I, be, if I run the 1,600 meters. And I remember going out to the track. We were running, and, and the track has, I can't even tell you how many lanes, six or seven, maybe eight, I don't know. But I noticed something about the lanes. The outside lane was a little further up, right? And I thought, that's where I want to be. That's where I need to be, all right? I need the advantage. But you know what I learned? It's still 1,600 meters. By the time you go around the track four times, it is still 1,600 meters. And that position didn't earn me any more than if I was at the first one. 
The same is true for our position before God. Apart from Christ, we are nothing. It doesn't matter what he's chosen us for in this life. We all need Jesus. The second thing that we see, starting in verse 11, is possessing knowledge of God's law falls short. It doesn't advance us. He says here in verse 11 through 16, he gives an example talking about those who sin under the law and those who sin outside of the law. He says in verse 12, all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. He's talking about Jew and Gentile. The Jews had the law, the Gentiles did not have the law. The law of the Ten Commandments was God's way of revealing himself and who he was, his holy character, to his chosen people Israel so that they could understand how God was holy and how they were fallen and in need. But they had it. He revealed himself in a special way. We call this special revelation. And he revealed himself to the Gentiles in what we call general revelation. So he didn't give them two tablets of stone with his law bullet pointed on there. But he gave them a mind. He gave them a soul. He created every human being in his image. That means that there's not, that there's not a single person that does not bear the fingerprints of God in some way. And so all around the world, you can go to any place around the world and people have a conscience. There are certain laws that they've created to protect one another from one another. Sound familiar? Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Commit murder. These are protective negative rights that we have. And that societies all around the world for all time, some of them are skewed, some of them are a little weird, but still there's a standard. Why? Because God's created us in his image. And so he says, because all who are, because everybody's a sinner, he says all who have sinned without the law, they're also going to perish without the law. The law is not the issue. And then he says, all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. The law is not meant to save anyone. And then he says in verse 13, this is why. Because not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. What Paul is saying is, no one is a doer of the law. Whether they're under the law or not under the law. So whether you're Jew or Gentile, all are under God's condemnation. Why? Because none of us live perfect lives. We're all sinners. Verse 14, when the Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves. In that they show the work of the law written in their hearts their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. What does he mean by that? He says when, when they sin and God makes it apparent to them through their conscience, not through the written law, they don't look at their action and then look at the written law and go, oh, wow, I did that. 
they just know instinctively. It's called the conscience. He says, they become a law unto themselves and therefore they are justly condemned before God. This is why they need the gospel. They don't need the law. They need the gospel. They need the, the euangelion, the good news, as it's called. And so, he shows here that our hearts are the issue. It's a heart issue. Something has to change in our hearts and minds. It's not a matter of outward reformation. It's not a matter of, of gaining access to the written law and say, I think, I think I can perfect this. It won't happen. So knowledge or possession of the law or of truth is not enough. It only condemns. This is why the chosen and everyone else need the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And so, what is it that both groups need? Whether you're part of a chosen community or not. What is necessary to be right with God? To be in right relationship with Him? It's a personal surrender to Christ. And it's a personal surrender to Christ as Lord and Savior. can belong to a church community you can grow up in a Christian home you can grow up in the church you can grow up in a Jewish community having access to the Old Testament and to the law of God but until we come to Jesus we are all in the same boat until we see him on the cross and we understand what he's done for us personally in our place. That he who is perfect. The Bible says he who knew no sin. He never sinned. He became sin on the cross. So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That we might become righteous. That we might be called righteous, reckoned as righteous, seen as righteous. So that when God looks at us because of Jesus' death on the cross, he no longer sees our sin, but he sees the payment that was made on the cross for us through his son. The Bible says there's no remission of sin without the shedding of blood. That's why we, that's why we preach and teach the cross of Christ. And it's becoming more and more unpopular. People don't talk about the cross. They don't talk about the blood of Christ. But it's central to the message of the gospel and to the Bible. That's how we can come before God's presence and be called righteous and enter into his presence. It's because of the blood of his son that atones, that cleanses all of our sin. And this has huge implications for you personally for us as a church and also for the people that we minister to. We use a word sometimes. Um, sometimes we get these words confused. But the word evangelism, the word evangelism, it means what we do when we share our faith with other people. When we tell other people about what Jesus has done on the cross for us. That he died for us. That he died in our place. 
That's what evangelism is. And the implications for evangelism in this passage are huge because some people like to, and it is a comforting thought. It's a comforting thought for us to think that the people around the world and in your community, people in your workplace, people in your family, people across the street, who have never heard the gospel, we like to soothe our consciences by saying they're going to be okay. They're going to be included. It's called inclusivism. The idea that at the end, everyone, regardless if they've heard the gospel or not, are going to live in eternity with God. And so the cross is really arbitrary. It's superfluous. It doesn't matter. But we don't believe that. Because the Bible doesn't teach that. And it doesn't teach it, it, it here in Romans 2. It's very, very plain. Paul says, all who live under the law are going to die under the law because they're going to be judged by their works, by their deeds. Everyone's going to be judged by their works. But those, and this is the gospel, those who, though we live in sin and are captivated by sin, through Jesus Christ and his death on the cross, when we put our faith in him and when we surrender him as Lord and we give him our life and say, Lord, you are my master. I give my life to you. I surrender to you through faith. That at that moment, when you become a believer, the Bible says you are born again. You're a new creation. And now when God looks at you, he no longer sees your sinfulness, but he sees Jesus. And so, we like to sometimes think that inclusivism and that universalism are good things because it's loving to our neighbors and to our friends who've never heard the gospel. But listen, what God is calling us to do and the implications of this morning's message is it doesn't matter if your neighbor is someone who has access to a Bible. We might tend to think, hey, people in America, people have access to the gospel. There are so many churches, Christian churches in our nation. It's funny, coming from the Bible Belt uh, here to Maricopa, and there are so many mobile churches like ours. And so churches here, instead of having buildings with steeples and parking lots and marquees and things like that, we have road signs. And so we go out on Saturday morning and we put out road signs and so people know that there's a church that meets here in Santa Rosa and if they want to, you know, come and, and uh, join us in worship, then we'd love for them to do that. Otherwise, throughout the week, people don't know physically looking around the city that we're here. And I hear people in Maricopa will complain a lot. Gosh, there are so many churches here. When they hear we're planting a church, they go, you guys are planting a church in Maricopa? And these are people that move here from like New York and Washington and Chicago and places like that. Gosh, there are so many churches here in Maricopa. I was like, are you kidding? I lived in a town of 3,000 people. Within the city limits, there were 21 churches. This is a small town. Here, I think there, when we first came here, there were 23 churches in a city of almost 60,000. That's not very many churches. And even if it was, even if it was, even if every soul in our city had a Bible in their home, even if they had channels on their TV that they could go to and watch 
health and wealth prosperity gospel preachers or anybody else for that matter on TV, even if they could, even if they have the freedom to worship living in a country where that freedom's provided as in other places, it may not be around the world. God's word tells us this morning that every single one of us need the gospel. Owning a Bible, having experience in church, living in a place where you have the freedom to worship does not guarantee anything. And so when we do missions, sometimes we look at where's the place around the world that has never heard the gospel? The remotest village where no one's ever heard the name of Jesus. And it's good for us. It's good for us to send missionaries there and for us to go and for us to pray for them. But it's just as good for us to pray for our neighborhood. For the people that work with us. Because just because you are privileged to be in a place or to be part of a specific group that doesn't reconcile you or me to God. It's only Jesus. And it's only a personal relationship with him. And I hope that today's word, if you're here today and you've been putting your trust in something else, you might have been putting your trust in the people that live in proximity to you you might be putting your trust in the availability of the gospel should you choose to reach out and call out to God. I hope that today's message in God's word will prompt you to not only realize how much you need Christ, but that you would call on him today and say, Lord, I, I need you. I've been putting my trust in all these other things and I realize today that I need you. I pray that you would call upon him, confess your sin to him, and accept him as your Lord. If you're here this morning and you've been thinking about evangelism, maybe in the wrong way, I hope that God's word today reorients you to the, the primacy of knowing Christ and him crucified. And that you would be fueled by that and that that would change the way that you interact with people around you and that it also reinforce your faith today in Christ alone as your Savior and Lord. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you, Father, for your word. God, I thank you that even in my inability to communicate it well, God, that your Holy Spirit is here and is moving. God, I pray that each heart and each mind would be submitted to you today, Father, that we would realize just how much we and our friends and neighbors need Christ and how central his death, burial, and resurrection is to everything in this world that has happened from the moment you spoke it into existence and the moment that Christ comes again that everything we would see revolves around that day when Jesus died in our place. Make it ever so more powerful and life-changing in our hearts and minds today. And we 
ask it in Jesus' name.